I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm going to need you. <laughs> My grandmother always said, everything in life go better if you pray first. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, use me today as an instrument of thy will. Speak through me so whatever results that you desire here this morning will be accomplished in all things. Thy will, not mine, be done. Amen. What I love most about AA is the simplicity of it. You will find out I am a very simple guy. There's a passage in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't know what page it's on and what cha- I was taught this is a design for living, not an exercise in memorization. But there's a passage in the book that I love, and what it says is simply this, because it bottom lines everything in here for me. Remind the prospect that his recovery is not dependent upon people. It is dependent upon his relationship with God. The single most important fact in my life as I stand here today is that I have a relationship with, I used to say a loving God, but I changed that. I have a relationship with a God that is love. And there's a difference. I have a relationship with a God that is love, who does for me one day at a time what I could never do for myself through already provided grace. I establish and grow in that relationship one day at a time through living, not analyzing, discussing, or memorizing, but through living as best I can and never perfect, right? But progressively better? The 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous as outlined by the founders in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And that is the reason I pray before I tell you who I am. I am not the source of my strength. Left to my own devices, I would have destroyed myself years ago. That prayer reminds me of two things I believe are vital and crucial to me staying here. First and foremost, the reason I'm in Lexington, Kentucky today is to do God's will, not mine. And it also serves to remind me that he is in charge here this morning. And as always, thank God, I am not. Good morning. My name is Kent Coleman. I'm an alcoholic. My parents raised me right. If my mother was here, she would jump up and say, you ain't turn out right. But anyway, <laughs> I, I, I want to demonstrate my upbringing. I want to say thank you to the committee um, for the honor and the privilege of participating in this celebration of recovery. Um, I want to thank Timothy, who's been a really good host. Um, you know, for a guy who don't like getting behind the microphone, he looked pretty comfortable to me, didn't he? Right, right, right. He looked pretty comfortable up here to me. I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm just an observer. <laughs> want to thank the speakers who carried the message of Alcoholics Anonymous to us. Um, Peter been a friend of mine for years. I, we drove up here after work Friday, so I didn't get to hear Marion, but I hear her on the CD. Daryl, who, who's, who's sponsor, I love. And I love your sponsor. And, and to all of you, because you can't have a con. All the people who've shared with me over the weekend, the panels that we've had, it's just been, it's just been a feast of Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I, you know, we were riding down here and we listened to my friend Ralph, um, on, on, and we, we were with Tom I one day. And, and Ralph said at the time, we was in Akron actually, and Ralph said at the time, Tom, you've been here 50 some years, what's the most important thing in here? And and Tom looked at Ralph and he said, enthusiasm. 
enthusiasm. When I was new in Alcoholics Anonymous, I said to my sponsor, Bill, people say I have enthusiasm for AA, and he said, and I hope you always do. He said, college boy, go home and look that up in the dictionary. That's what he used to call me, right? My mother used to call me the educated idiot. And uh, <laughs> so I went home and I looked it up in the dictionary. He said, what does it say? I said, it's from the Greek root in theos, which means the God within. And he said, if you ever lose your enthusiasm for Alcoholics Anonymous, you have a spiritual issue and you must attend to it at once. I said it in the book study Wednesday night. I still get excited to go to an AA meeting. And I ain't talking about something like this. I'm talking about just go to meeting. Just get in the car, go across the go to meeting. I still get excited. Where can you get this? Anything like this in your life, where you get to see people, the walking dead, come to life. You get to see the light come back in people's eyes. You get to see mothers and fathers and employers and employees take their rightful place in the world and start giving instead of taking. Where else in the world can you see this? I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love it. And I pray that I never stop loving it. I pray I never, I never got up and thought I got to go do my AA duty, right, and make a meeting. I don't even know what make a meeting means, right? I, I have the honor, privilege, and I'm blessed to participate in the life-giving, life-changing, life-saving fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, I want to talk for a minute um, to our new friends. If you're new in here today, welcome. When I came to, I, you know, I'm a guy because I work with a lot of people. I remember what it's like to be new. People are like, well, you know, kind of after a few years, it kind of, you know, fades away. If you feel that way, if you feel like it's fading away, you don't really remember. I have a suggestion for you this morning. Sponsor somebody. Sponsor somebody. Right? It's It's a... The, the blessings that come in here defy my ability verbally to, to express, right? But there's things, because they're of spirit. And I don't have words for a lot of this, but there are things that happen. My sponsees are the mirror to my soul. When you sponsor somebody who's nine months sober and they go, you ain't going to believe what I did today. And they tell you, and you think to yourself, oh, my God, I did that yesterday, right? <laughs> it's, 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 it's crazy, man. It's crazy, right? It's, it's, they keep they keep me in front of me. Because if I ain't with you, then I'm with the problem, right? And I got a mind that will rationalize or justify any kind of ridiculous behavior. But I stay with you. I stay with you. And it's a whole different story. I love working with folk. So I remember what it's like to be new. When I walked into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, I walked in here as I was. Nobody sprinkled pixie dust on my head when I came into my first meeting. And all of a sudden, I know what this is. I want what you got. I don't know who you are, and I don't know what you got. All I know is I don't want what I got. That's all I know when I come in here. And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous from the street. And the street guy comes. He's got two things active in his life. My, my entire skill set was wrapped up in two things. Watching and listening, because that's how you stay alive in the street. I did not allow you to get close to me. I didn't. I wouldn't for all this handshaking. And I definitely. Some of y'all like to hug. Uh huh. Uh -huh. 
Because where I come from, you don't let nobody get that close to you. The dudes I ran with I, were guys I knew since kindergarten. And I didn't let them get that close to me. I don't even know y'all. I ain't letting you get that close to me. But y'all, y'all understood me because you've seen me before. And what y'all do is just love me. Y'all just love me. So I came up in here, you know, and I started watching and listening. Saw two very clear, distinct groups of people in here. People who are staying sober one day at a time and who seem to be relatively happy and be doing relatively well. People who are not staying sober one day at a time and who do not appear to be doing relatively well. Let's keep this simple. So we'll call them group one. Group one, they was in and out, in and out, in and out. And I'm not throwing shade at people who come in and out. Some of our best members did not get this the first time. But what I will say to you this morning, if you knew in here, make this your first time and your last time because you might not get another time. You might not get another time. I'm just going to share my experience with you. Right? So I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. They then and out and out. What I noticed about them is every time that they came back in from being out, those who were fortunate enough to come back, they looked worse than the last time they came back in from being out. It wasn't getting any better. I didn't see nobody come back in here off the street passing out $100 bills and driving a new BMW talking about how good it was out there. Right? They were restless, irritable, and discontented. They talked of terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. We'll call them group one. Then there's group two. You've been at this conference any amount of time this weekend. You have seen group two in action. Working out here at the registration, at the tables, you know, setting up tables and chairs. You see them at every meeting you go to. They put up the tables and chairs. They put out the literature. They make the coffee. They greet people at the door. They talk about God, big book, steps, spirituality, and enjoying life sober. We'll call them group two. Now, my story will prove that I am no rocket scientist, but I figured out really quickly group two has a much better deal than group one, right? So now I gotta see, well, what is it that the group two people are doing that the group one people are not doing? Well, the group two people all seem to have some things in common. They had something called a sponsor. Now, I didn't know what a sponsor was when I came to AA. I used to play softball for Cronin's Tavern. They was our sponsor. <laughs> and I got a free bar tab and clothes out of that deal, so I thought, well, maybe this AA ain't so bad, right? So I started looking at what kind of car y'all driving so I could see who's gonna be my sponsor, right? And y'all sat me down and you told me what a sponsor was. You told me that a sponsor is someone who has working knowledge and experience with the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous as outlined in our book, who is willing to take the time to walk me through that book page by page, right, and share with me the program of recovery. And I, I believe, more importantly, is a living demonstration of those people, of those principles in their life who can show me what my life can be like if I do what they do. Notice I say working knowledge, not book knowledge. A, a lack of reading was not my problem here. I came here, I knew I went to college education. I know how to read. I don't know how to live sober. Notice what I say? I don't know how to live sober. So that's what sponsorship is for me. I have sponsorship today, and, and he just said I'm sponsored by Bob in Vegas. I was raised in Alcoholics Anonymous by the late Bill Finley and Lorraine and Kenny Bobalicki in Cleveland. Bill died 52 years sober. Kenny's got like 47 now. I still talk to Kenny once a week. Talk to Bob a couple times a week. I have sponsorship. I, I want to say something about sponsorship, if you're new in here. Having a sponsor is a great thing. Being sponsorable is even better. Right? 
People ask me all the time, Ken, how many people do you sponsor? I say, oh, by half of them. <laughs> That's the way it is, right? Everything in Alcoholics Anonymous is experiential. It's not theoretical. It's experiential. Everything in here, the value that it has in my life and in my recovery is based upon how much I actually use it. Having a sponsor in name only does not help me. It does not help me. I'm, I'm a guy, I, I'm still a watcher and a listener. And I listen in meetings. You ever hear this? And it's usually somebody sober about 18 months to three years. Well, you know, I guess maybe I should call my sponsor sometime. I, I used to call, because now they know everything. I've been, I've been sober that amount of time. Now you know everything, right? Until life show up at your door one day. And you find out exactly how much you don't know, right? So if I stay in regular contact with my sponsorship, you know, I, I got a pretty good chance of being really heading a lot of that stuff off before it happens, and I will surely have guidance when it does, right? So if it, I, I like to do this. Would everybody that's in here this morning who would be willing to sponsor a new person in AA, please raise your hand. Thank you very much. For all of you who are new and you don't have a sponsor, I just hooked you up. Right? No one ever need leave an AA meeting without the benefit of sponsorship. So if you're sitting here this morning and you don't have no help, the help that you need just identified itself. What you do with that information is up to you. See, when I came here, I didn't know you. I don't know if you got 10 years or 10 minutes. Nor do I know whether or not you'd be willing to help a guy like me who didn't feel he deserved any help. So if you knew in here, those people just identified themselves. I was in Mexico, I think Mexico City, I spoke of this thing. And uh, so I had this interpreter. And after the, the meeting in the thank you line, this young lady came up to me, pointing at this older lady, and she was speaking rapidly in Spanish. Kent don't speak rapid Spanish. Kent don't speak slow Spanish. So I looked at the interpreter, and the interpreter is saying, Kent, she's telling you that she just asked that lady to be her sponsor. Maybe the only reason I was there. No, the only God knows those things. So when new people come here, I do not assume, and this is really important for me, that they know anything about this. I, how can I assume that? I, when I came here, I did not. Another thing that those people in group two had in common, they had something called a home group. And they told us, if you ain't got a home group, you're homeless in AA. Everybody hears that, right? Right? And, uh, and I've never been a part of anything I've always been a part from. And we heard this morning from the best home group in Lexington or Kentucky, and they're shooting for the best in the world. That ain't my, that's not my home group. That's not my home group, man. You know, I, I used to be a better than or less than guy before I came here, and what that did for me is it kept me separate. And our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon AA unity. I'm a member of a group. We have a primary purpose. It is to carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers. We do the best we can at that, right? And we have a lot of fun in the process. Don't make my group better than yours. Don't make yours less than mine or yours better than mine. I came in here separated. And any time that I get separated in here is better than or less than, I'm on my way out of here. Um, and I've watched that happen to a lot of people. Um, Chuck Chamberlain used to say there is but one problem in which has encompassed all problems, and that's conscious separation from God and our fellows. There is but one solution in which has encompassed all solutions, and that's conscious contact with God and our fellows. We are one. 
we are one. My mother used to read a thing to me, you know, that God is divine, we are the branches. We are one. So I ain't better than you. I ain't the best alcoholic ever to come here. I ain't the worst alcoholic ever to come here. Um, I'm just an alcoholic. I'm a member of a group. And um, and we abide by the 12 traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous as best we can. And uh, we got our hand out to the sick and suffering alcoholic because that's why we're there. That's our purpose. Our purpose is not to gather and have friends and social hour. Yes, we do have fellowship and sociability, just like the book says. But we have a primary purpose. That means above all else. And that's that sick and suffering alcoholic that come through the door, whether they knew or whether they not knew. And that's what I like to call the total package in Alcoholics Anonymous. Let's keep this simple. Sponsorship, big book and steps, home group, and a service commitment in Alcoholics Anonymous. In my experience, which is the only thing I'm allowed to share from behind the podium, I have yet to meet an alcoholic of our type. And if you don't know what an alcoholic of our type is, read the book. I've yet to meet an alcoholic of our type who's come in here, apply those things to their life one day at a time as best they can, and go back out here and take a drink. I have not seen it happen one single time, and I've been here for a while. On the flip side of the coin, keep it simple. I have yet to see an alcoholic of our type come in here, ignore those things, and stay sane, sober, or happy for any appreciable length of time. The simplicity of Alcoholics Anonymous. Those who do get and those who don't, don't. And it's just that simple. I identified myself as an alcoholic when I stood up here. I didn't know what that was when I came here either. I always had a definition of alcoholism before I came to AA. I like to say it was a sliding definition because as my alcoholism progressed, I kept fitting my definitions, right? So every time I fit it, I'd have to lower the bar a little bit, right? If you ask me when I was a teenager what an alcoholic was, I said somebody drink every day. I don't know where I got that from, TV, listening to people, I don't know. But that's what I thought. As a teenager, I became a daily drinker. That ain't it. Alcoholic is somebody who misses work or school, ball practice, important things in life, interferes with your priority, drinking interferes with your life, right? As a teenager, I began to miss work, school, ball practice, important things in life because of drinking. That ain't it. But I hung on in there. I finally figured her out. Alcoholic is somebody who goes to jail because of drinking, right? I finally figured it out. As you'll hear in a few minutes, I really had to change that one quick. By the time I got here, I always tell the story. Y'all remember old Otis on the Andy Griffith show? Y'all remember Otis? Otis clothes all the way wrinkled. He had cheap pine on him, in and out of jail in Mayberry. I watched every episode of the Andy Griffith show. I don't remember Otis working no place, right? <laughs> As a true story, I always tell it. I was over in England speaking at a convention, and I stood in front of them. I said, y'all remember Otis on the Andy Griffith show? And 2,000 people went, No. I came home, I told that to my sponsor, and Bill said, never use my name again. <laughs> but y'all know what I'm talking about, long trench coat on, stocking cap, sleeping under a bridge. Peter described himself in that building last night, right? Wild Irish Rose, Mad Dog, Thunderbird, out of brown paper sack, sleeping under a cardboard box. Yes, that certainly must be an alcoholic. That's my definition when I got to you, because that's the only thing that had not yet happened to me, and the only reason it hadn't happened to me is because of my family. I am, uh, 
I'm a young man. By the time I was 24 years old, I was drinking in Wino's Alley in Sandusky, Ohio with them old men. I worked at Ford Motor Company. I got off work at 8 o'clock in the morning, and I went down that alley, and I know what it's like to put 50 cents on a wine at 8 o'clock in the morning and start drinking. The only difference between me and the men in that alley is that there was still somebody to open the back door for me when it got dark, and there was nobody left to do it for them. But I come to Alcoholics Anonymous. My disease is still active. I did not recover by attendance. Can I say that again? I did not recover through attendance in here. Attendance is vital in here. But I recovered through a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, not by sitting in a room. There's an old timer in Sandusky, Mr. Willie, told me, sitting in a chicken coop don't make you no chicken. <laughs> right? I, I, I get it, right? I didn't get it then, but I get it, right? So I recovered just because I showed up here, but I started hearing some things when I started coming in here, right? And I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, right? And, and uh, I, I don't know, I don't know what the problem is. I don't understand alcoholism, right? Um, and my disease is active. And my disease looks to separate me from you. It looks for differences when I'm new here, not similarities. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It wants to disqualify me from being here, right? So I'm listening to people in the meetings, and I hear all these people talk about living in shelters, being homeless. So my, my diseased mind seized on that. It said, you ain't never been homeless. You don't, you, ain't, you, ain't, you don't need to be with these people. So I went to a meeting, and I vocalized that one day. I would advise against that. I done poor Clinton Nooners, and I sat up in my chair, and I said, you know, I ain't never been homeless. There was a man at that meeting. God rest his soul. His name was Jim Redmond. He was an old-timer from Cleveland, retired, lived out by me. He was at that time about 52 years sober. And here's what really upset me about this. It was not his turn to share. He was in the back of the room. They were ready. They, them old guys didn't care, right? They didn't have no meeting etiquette. Jim Redmond looked up when I said that. He said, really? He said, I got some bad news for you, young fella. He said, if you grown and you living in your mom and daddy's house and you ain't paying no rent, you're homeless. That man hurt my feelings describing my life like that. I hope I ain't step on no toes in here this morning. But the truth will set you free. So what is this thing called alcoholism, right? We go to doctor's opinion first thing in the book. We've got to find out what the problem The book is broke down into three very distinct sections. What is the problem? What is the solution? Then it gives me a practical program of action to apply the solution to my life. So the, the, the problem, right? Alcoholism, right? Mental obsession, right? What is an obsession? An obsession is a thought so strong that it will override or overcome any thinking that I as a human being can raise against it by my own will. What is some of the thinking I tried to raise as a defense against taking the first drink? I tried common sense. My grandmother told me later I wasn't born with none of that, so that certainly didn't work. I tried self-knowledge. I did this last week. I won't do this right. I did it again. Um, I tried willpower, right? Who was it, Betty Ford and Nancy Reagan? And one of them said, just say no. I kept saying, just give me another one. But that didn't work. I tried fear of consequences on my face. You ever do this? I'm, I'm in my late teens, early 20s. Not in my 30s. I'm in my late teens, early 20s. Laying in the bed in the morning, wake up, looking at the ceiling, and mentally making a list of all the reasons why I ain't picking up today. Anybody ever done that? Uh, if you're new in here, I want to share something with you. If you're doing that, that's an indicator of a problem. People who don't have a problem don't have to do that. They just don't drink. 
If I drink today, I'm going to get kicked out of school, lose my job, get kicked out the house. Girlfriend going to leave me. Uh, a dirty urine. I'm going to prison. All these things true in my life at one time or another. And if you drink like I drink and do what I do the way I do it, usually three or four of them going on simultaneously. I'm a jackpot guy. And I would lay in the bed and take a look at the truth. All those things were true. And I'd make a decision based on truth. Easiest kind of decision there is to make. I do not want these consequences in my life. Therefore, I ain't drinking. And I meant it as much as I mean it today. Anybody following me? Right? Then I get out of the bed. <laughs> and about ten seconds later, another thought comes floating in my head. If you knew, come with me. And it goes something like this. It's Friday. <laughs> it's Friday, and you know, Kent, none of this is really your fault. I have worked all week, which for me is three days. This is the United States of America. I'm grown. I ain't hurt nobody. And by God, who's going to tell me that I can't have a drink? Anybody following this? Right? I thought so. Here's the thing. The truth, which is what I thought in the beginning, never comes back. Our book says we cannot bring into sufficient, into consciousness with sufficient force the pain, suffering, humiliation, days, weeks. With me, it's hours ago. I am without defense against the first drink. Welcome to the wonderful world of powerlessness. Right? I didn't want to go to jail no more then than I do today. I never walked into a bar room and said, Hey, bartender, give me a shot in the beer. I want to be in jail by 9 o'clock. <laughs> Just like a radar, bam, I lock on that lie. I can have one, and it is a lie. So now that I'm only going to have one, I pick up the drink and I drink it. The second part of the disease becomes active in my life. Dr. Silkworth called it an allergy to alcohol. We refer to it as the phenomenon of craving. Okay? And it's what sets us apart from everybody else in this world. Nobody has that but us. It sets us apart, the book says, as a distinct entity. Okay? Little story I like to tell about the phenomenon of craving. It's a true story. I'll soak about 10, 12 years. I'm out riding on my lawnmower on a 90 degree day cutting my Grass, and so is my non-alcoholic next-door neighbor. I'm watching him. He gets hot and thirsty. He shuts his lawnmower off. He walks across the lawn. He goes to his deck. He flips open a cooler. It is full of cold beer. He pulls out a cold one. He pops a top on her. He sucks her down. It quenches his thirst. And nobody in this room is going to believe it, but I've seen this with my own two eyes. With that full cooler of beer still sitting there, that man actually got back on his lawnmower and finished cutting his grass. I'm sitting over there, I'm watching him, I'm like 10, 12 years sober, and I'm going, 
you got there? What you? Because see, my neighbor ain't like me. If I get off of my lawnmower and I go over there and I open up a cooler and I pop the top on a cold one and I suck her down, it does not quench my thirst if you knew come with me. What it does to me is it make me thirstier. It creates in me, we, we, we talk about the phenomenon of craving, it, an insatiable, unquenchable thirst. And grass cutting is over at the Coleman house. My lawnmower will be sitting in that same spot two weeks from now when I get out of the county. Because I'm headed up the street, buddy. Right? Spiritual malady, soul sickness. Dr. Silkworth says something in, in the doctor's opinion, and it changed my life when my first sponsor took me to it. It says that we are restless, irritable, and discontented unless we can again experience a sense of ease and comfort, which comes at once from taking a few drinks. I am restless, irritable, and discontented. When? When I'm drinking? Am I mean, No. No. I experience ease and comfort when I take a drink of alcohol. When am I restless, irritable, and discontented? I'm restless, irritable, and discontented when I'm sober. Problem, and as it goes on in the book, later on in the book, and, and Wilson says it, right? The alcohol is not the problem. It's the symptom of the problem, right? The symptom of the problem is the restlessness, irritability, and discontentedness that I experience sober. So what I got to do is I got to learn how to live sober, happy, joyous, and free. And in order to do that, and this is what I love about this fellowship, I get to get a relationship with a power greater than myself because there is one who has all power. It was read up here earlier, right? That one is God. May you find him now, right? Spiritual kindergarten. Spiritual kindergarten. Now, I don't know how to do that, but y'all going to show me. This disease of mind, body, and spirit is called alcoholism. And if you got it, and I don't know if you do, but I definitely do, and I don't treat it, death, imprisonment, or commitment are guaranteed me. Those are the three guarantees. And if you're new in here you don't understand that, stay here and watch what happens to the people who don't. It's on display on a daily basis. I, uh, I was born in the city of Sandusky, Ohio, the second of three boys. I was raised in a Christian home. I have not been taught anything differently in Alcoholics Anonymous than I was taught in my house. My mother was uh, an executive at Chrysler Corporation, and she was the president of Ohio Baptist Women's Convention. All these famous people that you would see on TV and civil rights and religion and people been in my house. My mother was a power. My mother was a power. My mother walked in this room right now. This room would get twice as bright. God rest his soul. My mother glowed with the spirit. My father was a, a master sergeant in the United States Army. Got out of the Army, and he worked at General Motors for 42 years, never missed a day's work. That was my father. My father was commissioner of the youth football and baseball leagues in our town. My mother's older brother was two-term mayor in the city of Sandusky. In my family, you will find professional athletes. You will find people who are... Uh, very successful in business and entertainment. You find all that in my family. <laughs> and then there's me. <laughs> I was the second of three boys. Um, I had as fine a mom and dad as, as have ever graced this earth. We wore $100 tennis shoes in the early 1970s, 10 speeds, mini bikes, motorcycles. When I went off to college, I went to Miami of Ohio. I peeled a sticker out of the window of a brand new car and left Sandusky. That's the kind of mom and dad that I had. In our house, you know, it, it, Wilson says in the 12 and 12 that the, the steps are a set of principles spiritual in nature. I was introduced to that one out before I even went off to kindergarten. In our house, they told us honesty is the best policy. A real man is always honest with himself and other people. In my house, maybe in your house, we got automatic butt whoopings when we got caught lying. Did that happen in anybody else's house in here? 
Welcome to step one. The principle of step one is honesty. I learned it at the end of a hickory stick. I'm, I'm about six years old. My mother calls me in the living room, and this was the first of a million conversations that started this way. Kenny, I'm concerned about you. She said, contrary to what you seem to believe, the sun does not rise when you wake up and set when you go to bed. She said, look out the window and tell me what you see. Sky, grass, dogs, cats, birds, people, cars. She said, you think this just popped up out of nowhere? She said, there's a power that's greater than you that created all of this. All you need to do is be willing to believe that. Welcome to step two. And our house, they told us if we would make a decision to put our lives in the hands of the power that created all of this, in my house, they called that power God. They said, you always have what you need no matter what happens outside or around you. They was telling us that the answer is inside, it's spirit, it's not outside. Step three. And our house, they told us, anytime you got a problem, no matter how bad you think it is, come talk to us about it. A problem shared is a problem half solved. You're only as sick as your secrets. Anybody ever heard that before? Steps four and five. In our house, my mom used to say the biggest room in a human being's life is the room for improvement. There are no perfect people. And if you will ask that power to help you grow in any useful way in your life, the power will always help you. That's what the power does. Welcome to six and seven. In our house, they told us anytime you hurt, harm, or wrong, someone else go make right the wrong you done. You owe an apology, make it your time, give it your money, pay it, clean up your mess. That's what responsible people do. Steps eight and nine. My mother used to say you can never go forward in this life if you don't know where you are today and what you need to work on to get where you want to go. How can you go somewhere if you don't know where you are? Step 10. Our grandmother told us the secret to having a good day was simple. We were little boys. She said, when you wake up in the morning, slide out of the bed onto your knees. Say one word, please. As you go through the day, no, no matter how many times you have to, and you don't know what to do, ask the power to help you. Saying to ourselves many times each day, thy will, not mine, be done. And at night, hit your knees again and say thank you. Conscious contact with God all the live long day, step 11. And in our house, they told us the greatest thing you can do with your life is not acquire money and material things, is to be of service to other people. They told us to follow the golden rule. Talk to folk the way you want to be talked to. Treat folk the way you want to be treated. Respect your elders. Offer to share with others before you have yourself. Be of service to your fellow man. Step 12. When I got on the bus to go to kindergarten, I was already armed with everything that y'all was going to teach me when I came here at the age of 32. If you knew here today, I got a message for you. Spiritually principled living did not originate in Akron in 1935. Those principles are ancient. And there are people who live like that every single day out there in this world. And check this out. They don't expect a pat on the back for it either. They don't expect a pat on the back for it either. I was seven months sober. I went to see my grandmother. I said, Mama, guess what? She said, what? I said, I paid my bill seven months in a row. She looked at me and said, I paid mine 72 years in a row. Get out of my house. Will you, will you, will you want a medal for that? It's crazy, ain't it? But we celebrate it here, right? Alcoholic get a job in here. We run a union all, all party. Four million people get a job every day, right? Alcoholic get a job. We throw a party, right? Right? So you're probably thinking to yourself, well, Ken, if you had all that before you went off to kindergarten, what on earth are you doing speaking at an AA meeting this morning? I bet you all know the answer to that, too. I never did any of it. I talked about it a lot, though. You ever be down at the bar room and it'd be some drunk in there quoting scripture? That was me. I'd be down at Brownlee's Tavern on Friday night. Somebody'd have a meltdown. Somebody had a meltdown down Brownlee's every Friday night, and it's usually because they was getting divorced, losing their job, or going to jail, because that's what we do down at Brownlee's. Kent would stagger over with a drink in his hand and say something like this. Matthew, 
chapter 7. Verses 14 to 21 tell, I'm given spiritual guidance and comfort drunk down to Brownlee's Tavern. People bought me drinks for that. I didn't stop there. I give uh, marital advice down Brownlee's. I had never had a wife, but I didn't see how that mattered. When my life savings laying on the bar, I give you financial guidance down Brownlee. I was like 25 years old. My father called me a walking encyclopedia of perfectly useless information. Because right? none of it was born of my experience. It's all stuff out of my head. I, could, I have to be careful in Alcoholics Anonymous. This is not an intellectual program. It is a spiritual program. Talking good, looking good, and sounding good is not what we do here. Right? We awaken our spirit, and what is born of that spirit, which is love, right? Everything else from there, it flows. Right? I don't do good stuff to try to get something from God. I get God in my life so he can do good things through me. Everybody follow me, right? And I ain't understand none of this. I, uh, so growing up, you know, I, I was a pretty shy, kind of quiet kid. I had an older brother and I had a younger brother. My older brother was a beast. I come from a football family. My family played football on Saturdays and Sundays, and we played in front of a lot of people, and we play, a lot of us play it for money. And uh, my brother was 16 years old. He was six foot two. He weighed about 215 pounds, and he could run a four four forty on a cinder track in tennis shoes. And uh, Ohio State had a coach named Woody Hayes, and Woody Hayes came to our house. When you got somebody like that living in your house, Woody Hayes would come to your house. And Woody Hayes came to our house. And I had a cousin who was an All-American at the University of Michigan who played in the National Football League for a lot of years. My brother was going to go to Michigan until Woody Hayes came to our house. Ten-minute conversation in the front yard. My brother came in the house. My mother said, well, my brother said, I'm going to Ohio State. And, uh, I asked him what, what he told him, and he said, what he said, where do you live? He said, Sandusky, Ohio. He said, where should you go to school? He said, Ohio State. What he said, I'll see you in Columbus. <laughs> That's how Woody used to do things. They didn't recruit like they do now. They start in the eighth grade now, right? They didn't do it like in them days. Woody just show up at Sandusky High School and start pulling guys out of class. That's what we did, right? I idolized my brother. My brother was my first drink of choice. I was a restless, irritable, and discontented kid. I found some relief in books. I found relief in daydreaming. I found relief in television and movies. I wanted to be somebody else, someplace else, doing something else. There was nothing wrong in my life. I was not abused. I was. I had wonderful parents. All of my problems start up here. I'm shy, insecure, and afraid. And, and fear is, is the beast in here. Fear is the enemy. And uh, I'm just a scared kid, right? And I, 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 I was my brother's shadow. I followed him everywhere I went. I had ease and comfort in his shadow. September of 1972, my brother is injured in a football scrimmage in Massillon, Ohio. It was a time when there was two of the top five high school programs in the country. And we used to go down there. We didn't have state playoffs in them days. So we used to settle the state championship a week before the season started. And we went down to Maslin. He had a big day that day. He had four or five runs over 50 yards. It was, it was, he was ridiculous that day. Late in the scrimmage, he fell funny. He hit his head. Bob, make a long story short, he went into a coma that Saturday night, nine hours of brain surgery Monday. He died uh, on that Wednesday. Now, did that make me alcoholic? Absolutely not. What makes me alcoholic is that when I put alcohol into my system, I'm one out of ten people who develops the phenomenon of craving. It didn't make me alcoholic. What did it do to me when I look back? You know, and everything looking back in the rearview mirror in here. It's a funny thing about alcoholism. You know, you can't see what it's doing to you until you're free of it. Everything I tell you today is looking in the rearview mirror. When I'm in the picture, I can't see the picture. 
And um, looking back at it, it just it it in, it increased the diff- distance between you and me. Because now it's 1972. We didn't have counselors and stuff. Everywhere I go, there's an elephant in the room. No one knows how to talk to me. Nobody knows how to respond to me. And I withdraw even further. I couldn't talk to my mother. This almost killed my mom and daddy. And I ain't going to tell you what it did to my grandparents. So, you know, I don't want to burden nobody with this stuff. And so I'm just more alone than what I was. Um, after my brother died, my mom used to talk to me a lot. And she'd say, Kenny, you know, God's done a lot of things for you. And you're going to have a really good life, right? And you're going to be a service to other people and blah, blah, blah. You know how they do, you know. I used to look at my mother like she had three heads. And I told my mother, I don't know where you get this stuff at. But I ain't got no desire to be a service to God, you, or nobody else. It wasn't that I didn't believe in God. But believing it, just believing that there is a God and living in accordance with his will are two different things. And I, I said, I, I don't have no desire to be a service to God, you or nobody else, but I want out of life. I can tell you in 30 seconds. I want mine, I want, I, and I want to get it my way, and I'm going to need you to leave me alone while I'm doing it because I ain't going to do it the way you do. My mother would get got that look on her face. You know that mother look that they get when they realize one of their kids is crazy? My mother looked at me and she said, where, where do you get this stuff? We didn't raise you that way. And I look at my mother and I put my finger in her face and I say, well, if you don't believe my way is going to work, just get out the way and watch. That's a snapshot of Ken at the age of 13. One of the gifts God did give me is I did well in school. I give God credit for that today. Of course, back then, I took credit for it because that's how I lived my life. Anything good, I take credit for. Anything bad, I blame you. And uh, I was a straight-A student. School did not challenge me. Um, I could read way before I went to school. You know, I, I was tailor-made for school. And uh, I'm sitting in study hall. I'm 14 years old. My first sponsor told me after he was sponsoring me for about a month one day, we was riding in his van. He looked at me and he said, I want you to remember something, son. He said, anytime you're in a room alone, all your enemies are there. And he was referring to my thinking. And I had a visit from the enemy that day. Here's the thought that occurred to me. I'm 14 years old. I'm sitting in study hall. These people in this study hall breaking their neck trying to get B's and C's taking general math and science. I'm in the 10th grade. I'm taking fourth year Latin, fourth year English, calculus, physics. I'm getting straight A's and I'm sleeping in class. You know, it just might be entirely possible that I know everything. <laughs> Y'all know where this story's going, don't you? Straight to the penitentiary. No, anyway. Uh, so, 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 you know, I had no evidence to support that thought as being true. I accepted it as a fact, and I left the room and took action on it, because that's what I do. I just befuddled the world, right? So I went home and I told that to my mother and father. I thought they ought to know. Changed things around the house a little bit. You know, I was scared of my father. My, my father played football at West Virginia State University. Back in the days, they didn't have face masks. My father was in the woods in Korea. My father went in a boat no place. I was scared of my father. And when I made that statement, my father flinched like he was giving to come up off that couch. I made a split-second decision not to wait to see what he wanted. And I broke for that screen door like my butt was on fire. When I closed it and turned around, he was right there. And my father pointed his finger at me, and he looked through that screen door, and he said, boy, I'm going to tell you something. He said, Kenny, you're going to have a hard life. He said, because don't nobody know everything. And I looked my father in his eye, and I laughed in his face. This was a significant day in my life, and my father never forgot this. I laughed at him. And immediately, everybody in my life got stupid. 
my mother, my father, the preacher, the teacher, later on, the police, the judges, the probation, the P.O. If I don't know it, it ain't worth knowing. It's my philosophy of life. Anybody in here ever told you ain't never wrong? Has anybody ever been told that? I ain't never wrong. I used to say I could be, but it just ain't happened yet. And that's how I'm going through life. There's a significance in this. Our book says that honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness are the three essentials of recovery. I have a closed mind. A closed mind cannot learn it, cannot grow. My mind is closed. I shut the door that day. And off I went, and I went on my own. I tell people I was the perfectly tilled soil for the disease of alcoholism. All I had to do was water it, and one day I did. I got in the car with a guy whose life I lived in my head. Snazzy car, pocket full of money, running around with the kind of girls I run away from. Very popular, known all over town in the spots you want to be known in. And I got in there. He was my best friend's older brother. He was the captain of the basketball team at Sandusky High. I played basketball in high school. And uh, I got in the car with Johnny, and I said, Johnny, Johnny said to me, Coleman, you want to get something to drink? I had been warned about drinking. Alcoholism does not run in my family. It gallops. And I have been told, we do not do alcohol well. Look at your uncle. Yeah. Both sides of my family are rife with this disease. There's two of us who are sober in this program. I got a cousin in Dayton that got about 40 years. Um, but but uh, all the rest of them died. And they died. I watched them die. But in my family, we don't talk about it. Y'all know what I'm talking about? We don't talk about it. When they names is mentioned, it just get quiet and we move on to another subject. That's how we do alcoholism in my family. And um, so I had been warned, but uh, if Johnny had said to me that day, let's go rob the carryout, I guarantee you I would have done it. That's a little sense of self I got. I'm a guy who's looking outside of me for, for a solution to what's going on inside of me. And uh, we got in, we went through the drive-thru, we bought 10 quarts of Slith Smart Liquor Bull. And uh, we bought 10 quarts of Slith Smart Liquor Bull because it was on sale. So the youngsters in here, the quart proceeded to 40 ounce. It was 32 ounces of beer. We dropped the convertible top on that beautiful Pontiac. The sun was shining. I could see it like it was yesterday. We cranked up the Parliament Funkadelic, and we rolled through the streets of Sandusky, and we drank that beer, and my life changed. It is, it is impossible to describe, but I'll do the best I can. I went from shy, insecure, and afraid to bold, confident, suave, debonair, and absolutely fearless in about 20 minutes. We went behind the Derrick Apartments, music blasting. That's where all the thugs hung out. They surrounded the car, music blasting. I looked at Johnny. I said, turn that music down because there's a few things I want to tell a few people who are present here this afternoon that I've been wanting to tell them for quite some time. And I just unloaded on everybody around the car, told them what was wrong with them and what they needed to do, in my opinion, to improve themselves. The boys around the car are leaning in the car and hugging me, and they say, see, I told you. I told you, Coleman, all right, he's loosened up, he's drinking, he's one of the fellas, he's one of us. Boom, conscious contact. I go from separation, boom, contact, right? And I realized on that day that when I drank, the way I see me and the way I see you change. Alcohol equals success, and you better believe I got it. I connected the dot. We left there. We went over to the home of some of them girls he run around with I run away from. I walked into that home like I had just paid the mortgage. I sat down at the dining room table. I made eyeball contact with a girl that I would never even say hello to, much less anything else. And uh, she looked at me, and I said, come here. 
Now, you got to understand, I'm like 14 years old. This is not a big deal. But she started coming to me. And I immediately went into a panic. Because I ain't got the faintest idea what to do with her when she gets over here, right? I don't think that far ahead when I'm drinking. My life proves this. So when she got over there, I did the only thing I could do. Because I watch a lot of TV. Guys like me got a lot of time on their hands. I watch a lot of TV. On TV, they go like this, so I did it. She sat down. And my life changed again, right? And the bottom line to that whole little story is on that day, alcohol did for me what I could not do for myself. Bill Wilson said, I was part of life at last. I, I get it. Whatever it was that was between me and you, alcohol seemed to eradicate it. What happened the rest of that day? We'll give you the rest of my drinking history, and we'll get out of this and uh, get ready to go home. Drink trouble. There's a lot of people who come here who drank many years and never get in no trouble. They never lose nothing. You're, that's not a requirement. The penitentiary is not a requirement for recovery. You don't have to lose everything. If you still got your stuff when you get here, thank God. Right? That ain't my, that's not my experience. If this here was a drink of alcohol, and I stood here this morning and took a drink, a cop would drop right out of that light and land in the middle of this floor. I'm sorry, but that's my experience. The first time I got drunk, I went in a blackout. I do not remember what went on the next four or five hours. According to eyewitnesses at the house, I came in the front door, started throwing up. I threw up a trail through the house, they said. Through the kitchen, through the living room, through the family room. My grandfather fell on the floor laughing. I went in the bathroom. I had everything but the toilet. The next thing I remember is my mom. God, clean up this mess. You know, you've been drinking. You know how they do. I staggered in it. She said, it smells like a brewery out here. I staggered into the hallway in what later years would be my drinking uniform, my underwear. <laughs> I had a hangover you can take out and look at. I'm dying. I go in the bathroom. I lock the door. I look through bloodshot eyes in the mirror. And this is what I said. Y'all know, don't you? Man, oh, man, I cannot wait to do that again. Now, grounded for life is what was being discussed in the living room and how that sentence I got grounded for life this is the first time I got drunk I got grounded for life so immediately I want you to stay with me I'm, I'm experiencing a negative consequence as a result of drinking the book talks about putting your hand on a hot stove don't it now a sane person I drank with people in high school they went out with me once right Throw up in my car. I throw you in the front yard. I see you on Monday. Hey, you want to do that again? No. Right? Here's my thinking. Okay? I'm in the bathroom, still screaming going on. I had a meeting with myself. I love having a meeting with myself before I ate. And here's what I came up with. Okay, Kent, you got drunk. Yep, you got sick. Yep, you got grounded for life. All this is true. Now, the reason, Kent, you got grounded for life is not because you got drunk. It's because you got sick. So what you got to do is learn how to drink without getting sick. Not drinking is never on the table. Anybody follow me? Welcome to the wonderful world of powerlessness. The insidious insanity of alcoholism. There was a guy recently at a meeting, and he, he made this statement. He said, I got a DUI because the light over my license plate was out. 
seven times in the state of Ohio, I'm talking about conviction. Now, understand this. By the fifth one, family's done, got no money. I worked at Ford Motor Company, did not have a car. Yes, it's possible. So I decided to represent, I have a college education. I put on a white shirt and a tie and I went to represent myself. The Honorable Judge Stacy said, I do not think this is a good idea, Mr. Colton. I'm matching wits with the prosecutor. These people are people who were really prominent in my life. I said, no, I'm, I'm fine. I can represent myself. I'm educated. So they put me on a witness stand. This is a true story. They said, we're going to make this quick. Prosecutor said, Mr. Coleman, on the evening in question, were you drinking? I said, yes, sir, I was. He said, Mr. Coleman, on the evening in question, were you driving? I said, yes, sir, I was. Judge Stacy hit the gavel and said, get this idiot out of my courtroom and lock him up. I found out later they call that a confession. This is the kind of mind I'm walking through life with. My mother used to always say, whenever I was in the newspaper, my mother would say to her friends, and he went to college. Right? This is the story of my life. So I'm gone, and I don't look back for almost 20 years. During that 20 years, I died. I died in 1984 um, as a direct result of the use of alcohol and some of its cousins. And uh, I died, you know, and I dropped dead on the floor. You know, people freak out when you do that. So they call the rescue squad. They put the paddles on me. And uh, I'm in the cardiac unit, whole family up there, girlfriends, whole family, just chaos. Because that's what guys like me do. This is a disease, it engulfs the lives of those who touch the sufferers, not taps them on the shoulder. I came here, the people who loved me were sicker than I was. I'm a believer in family disease, family recovery. We go through the book in our book study on Wednesday, we spend weeks on to wives and the family afterward. And not only how this program can in, in impact their lives, regardless of what the alcoholic does, but it also increases the chances for sobriety and alcohol. It's a win-win. I sponsor that way. My sponsees have to have Al-Anon phone numbers, Al-Anon meeting schedules, and Al-Anon pamphlets when they go on a 12-step call. And that's the way I was sponsored in AA. That's where I come from. My sponsor's sponsor was Neil C. Neil's sponsor was Dr. Bob. And that's the way I was sponsored. That's the way I was taught. And I was gone. I, I, so I died. And I'm in the cardiac unit. And I got tears running down my face. And I'm like, God, if you let me live, i never do this again. And, and buddy, you, if you'd have put a lie detector on me, the needle wouldn't have moved. I meant it more than I mean it now. 48 hours in the cardiac unit, they wheeled me down the, hospital, the, the hall, they put me in a regular room. And here's the thought that came to me. Whew, that was close. 
what I'm on right now. This calls Audrey. Two hours out of the cardiac unit, and I'm loaded in the hospital. And I didn't do that because I'd rather be drunk than sober. we got to stop that crap in here. This is not a matter of choice. I did it because I'm powerless over alcohol, and until I get some power, it ain't going to stop. If, if, if I had the power to quit drinking on my own, I'd have never come here. Why should I? If you could stop on your own, why would you be here? A lot happened. I got a driver's license that said I was 22 when I was 16. Cost me $25. And I put on a three-piece suit and tie one night, and I went to Toledo, Ohio. And I went to All Beautiful Shea Nightclub. That's what they said on the radio. That ain't what it was when I got there, but I didn't care. I'm 16 years old by myself. I'm in a major city an hour away from home. Snowing to beat the band. It was in January. I was supposed to be home at 1 o'clock. The only places I was allowed to go was the Union Hall and the Masonic Temple, the teenage dance, high school dances. That's the only place I was allowed to go. I'm in Toledo in the Shea nightclub. At 1 o'clock when I was supposed to be home, I was drinking a gin and juice and slow dragging with a woman older than my mother. You're the true story. 4 o'clock in the morning, I'm rolling down Wilbert Street with a plan. Drunk always got a plan. I'm going to go around the back of the house. I'm going to climb in the window. Nobody ever know, right? Some of y'all have probably had this experience. I came around the corner. The whole damn house lit up. Every light in the house on. Well, so much for climbing in the window. So Mr. Suave, sophisticated, in his three-piece suit, comes in the front door. My mom is sitting on the couch. Looked like somebody dumped a bucket of water over her head, tears just rolling down her face. My mother looked at me and she said, buddy, I'm going to tell you something. She said, as your parents, you know, it's our job to put a roof over your head, clothes on your back, give you food to eat and an education. And she said, we've done that. She said, but Kenny, I got something you can't have. And she said, that's my peace. She said, you're going to penitentiary or the cemetery, and I got news for you, buddy. I ain't going with you. She said, I am done. Go. Do what you want. I'm done. This is what I said to my mom. I broke you. I broke you. And I want you to know something, Mama. I'm a little disappointed in you. You're such a spiritual giant because it wasn't even that hard. And I walked away. That's how I treated my mom. Five years in college pursuing a four-year degree. I won't even get into that. I was an animal when I got down there. Did what I want. I was in Adaro yesterday and went to Purdue. Right? I wanted to go to, I wanted to play basketball at Kentucky. It was a small problem with that. I wasn't good enough. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to Miami of Ohio. There was a power back then. And, uh, it was some great times with some great guys. And, uh, I got hurt. And in my alcoholism, I, I never rehabbed after the first year. I just, I just stayed drunk down there. And, uh, came home and went to work in a factory. You don't need a college degree for that, but. You have to understand alcoholism caused the shots in my life. I needed a union. If you don't go to work like I don't go to work, you need a union. <laughs> right? And, and I mean, alcohol, you, you know, it's, a, it's a weird thing. Like, as you read Bill's story, right? 
Bill has all these goals and hopes and dreams, and so he goes to school, right? He starts meeting people. He joins societies all to what? To make his dreams come true. Then somehow alcoholism takes over at the center, and I construct a life that accommodates my alcoholism. Anybody in here know that? Alcoholism is a reducer. It is a reducer of spirit. It is a reducer of life. It's just a series of compromises as I go lower and lower and lower. I justify. And, and here's the thing. It don't just affect me. It affects everybody who loves me. Like, we don't really need to buy a house. Ain't nothing wrong with a trailer. We don't need a new car. Kids don't really need to go to college. They can go to a trade school. Is anybody following me? This thing just takes and takes and takes and not just us. I look back in the rearview mirror. At the end of my drinking, no baths, no showers. Um, I got a liver that's distended about seven inches. Every time I take a drink of whiskey, I cough. I drank old granddad. That's bourbon guy. And uh, I cough all this white stuff up. My body will no longer metabolize alcohol as my liver and pancreas are ceasing to function. I'm coughing up pure alcohol. My body is now rejecting what my mind is obsessed with. I'm 32 years old, and I'm dying of alcoholism. I tried everything I could think of to quit drinking. I went to, back to church. Um, I, I sit up at night with a Bible in this hand and a Miller High Life in this hand and tears in my eyes. I could not shut it off. Um, people prayed for me. People laid hands on me. I did every, I try, I read self-help books. I did every, by the time I came to y'all, I was done. I came out of the pump lounge on a uh, Wednesday night and I had a moment of clarity or a moment of sanity. Um, and there's a guy in Cleveland, Six Pack Charlie. He said, that's the moment when God paralyzes the liar in you long enough for you to see the truth. And what I saw was this. If you don't stop drinking, you're going to die. And you better get some help because you can't do it by yourself. You better do it now because you're running out of time. I'm a great believer in the power of prayer. I, uh, I called my best friend from college. He's a doctor. He doesn't live that far from here. His house is bigger than this hotel. Richard's a very powerful man now. He was a guy who could drink me under the table. And um, he got accepted to medical school. He had a joint in his hand and a beer in his hand. The letter of acceptance was laying on his coffee table. He looked at it. He said, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that loaded. And he put him down, and he ain't never picked him back up. He, he don't got what we got. And, um, and I called him, and I said, Rich, it's your boy. I need some help. I owed him about five grand. hadn't paid him a dime. Didn't even know if he'd take a call from me. And this is what he said to me. Man, I've been waiting for this call for seven or eight years. Pack a bag, stay by the phone. I got you. And I'm going to tell you something. He ain't a member of this fellowship. When I get a call at 3 o'clock in the morning from the North Central Intergroup office, you know what I tell them, don't you? Pack a bag, stay by the phone. I got you. And for that, I am responsible. Okay? And not only do I say that, I got some place to take you. My first sponsor told me, my first sponsor started Matt Talbot and um, Compass House. Bill was a power. And Bill told me, he said, you ought to become a resource for new people. And when people call you, you gotta, you gotta be connected. And I am connected. And I, and I insist that my sponsees be as well. We, uh, my brother and his wife took me down to Richard's house. He used to put me in Xenia, uh, Green Hall. And uh, my brother and his wife drove me down. I'm in the back seat. I got a case of Genesee beer. Now, I didn't know too much about this treatment thing, but I had figured out on my own they probably wasn't serving no liquor down there. 
So I'm in the back. I got this case of Genesee. I drink about three of these Jennies, and I have a visit. Here's the thought that come to me. You know, I just may have overreacted here, right? But ain't that the effect produced by alcohol? What I didn't know is my father told my brother, I'll give you $100, you don't bring that tramp back here. This is a true story. So I told my brother, I changed my mind, turned around. My brother looked into me, he said, you got $200. I said, I ain't got $2. He said, you going to treatment. <laughs> true story. God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. I spent 35 days at Green Hall, 28-day program. Day how that went. I had some behavioral issues in week one. <laughs> 28 days, they cut the insurance off. They called the Ford plant in Sandusky. They said, we don't think kids ready to leave the hospital. You know what you said Ford plant? We don't either. They actually wrote a check for me to stay another week. That's a true story. I had to pay it back. I had a dictator sponsor who made me pay that back when I got sober. And... uh I came home and I played a game. It's called Don't Drink, Go to Meet, and Don't Do Nothing Else. If I cut an artery in my arm, I start bleeding all over the floor. I put a towel on my arm. I drive to the hospital. I run to the emergency room. They come out. They say, come on back, Mr. Coleman. We'll treat you now. I sit there bleeding to death, look at him and go, no, thank you. I'll just sit here. And I bleed to death in the emergency room. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the emergency room. I've been watching people bleed to death in here for the last 26 and a half years. The treatment. For the disease I suffer from is a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps. There's a lot of things that facilitate that. Meetings, meetings, meetings. Go to meetings. Get a sponsor. Get a home group. Get active. Help others, right? And they, all of that has a purpose. It is to facilitate the 12 steps in my life. It's not a substitute for them. It's not a substitute for them. And I went to three meetings a day. I went to... Daryl was talking yesterday. I, I stopped counting at 200, and I was not three months sober. I went to three meetings in a day, and on the weekend, we went to four, five, six. Me and a guy named John. Lived in the meeting. Two months sober, no drink, no steps, no nothing. I tried to kill a guy. I was going to hit a, a, a supervisor in the head with a T-bar at four, and I'd have killed him, and I meant to kill him. That's what I looked like too much. I, it didn't get, they said, don't drink, and it'll get better. I didn't get better. I got worse. I got alcoholism, and it was untreated. Three months sober, I'm in the parking lot of a bar vibrating. Never wanted to drink so bad in my life. Said my first prayer in AA, three months sober, 200-something meetings. God, what am I doing wrong? Boom, what are you doing right? I got an immediate answer. You go to that many meetings, you hear it every day. Get a sponsor, read the book, work the steps, get a home group, help people. Right? <laughs> I treated AA like a cigarette-smoking, donut-dunking coffee clutch. Right? And I pulled out of the parking lot of Daly's Pub, and I went to an AA meeting, and I asked for help. And I have not looked back since. Um, Bill told me we'd take you through the steps the way we was taken through them. And, um, and they did that, and, I, and they took me through the steps as I try to live them in my life today. Um, I got to make amends to my parents before they died. Um, my mom died. I had to move back in the house because I didn't have a safe place to live. My mom died when I was almost two years sober. My sponsor told me, keep your mouth shut and move your feet. Go in the house and be a son, not talk a son. And um, I, I brushed my mother's hair. I carried my mother out to the couch. We watched TV together. I came, I got up one day, and I said to my mom, um, how was your day? And my mother just stared at me. I had not had a conversation with my mother since I was 13 years old. Only thing I ever said to my mother was, give me this, give me that, and how come this, and how come that? She got close to the end. My sponsor said, it's time. I went to see my mom. 
And my mother saw me bring my first sponsees to her house and go out and speak at AA meetings and go to all. She saw all that. And when I, and I had a big speech planned out and when the time came, I looked at my mom and I said, mom, I'm sorry. And my mom looked at me and, um, she said, I forgive you. And my mother had tears in her eyes. My mother told me, she said, we only wanted the best for you, Kenny. She said, I want you to promise me that you'll stay with those people in AA. They were able to do for you what we could not do to answer to my prayer. I promised my mother that I would and I have. My dad died. I was 17 years sober. Uh, there was nothing left on the table between me and my dad. Um, my father respected me. And I love my father. Uh, I got married when I was like three years sober. I got two daughters now. Um, 22 and 17. I got divorced when I was 20 years sober. Um, life be life. Um, my life is great today. Um, I got a wonderful girlfriend, right? And she's down here with me now. And we got a really, really good life. We got a really, really good life. I want to say this before I go about it here. You know, I know today that God is the source of everything good in my life. My job, other things are the channels through which he blesses me, and if those channels change, he will just bless me from another channel. Another door will open, it is true. But i got to keep God first. My relationship with God is the most important thing in my life. They gave me a tape of Warren Chisholm Sr., 12th man in AA in Cleveland. He was a friend of my first sponsor. Warren Chisholm made this statement that anyone who comes here who is willing to practice the precepts and principles of this program is outlined in the big book, need never drink again one day at a time. I said to Bill, how can he say that, never drink again one day at a time? Bill said, I'm going to tell you how you can say it, Kent. It's because this is a spiritual program, and God doesn't fail. There is no failure here. God doesn't fail. If I said anything today to help you, thank God, do not thank me. If I didn't say nothing to help you, guess what? It's some more meetings tonight. <laughs> God does not make too hard turns with those who seek him. God could and would if he were sought. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Bye, Kentucky.